Well, the main idea of our text and our sermon today is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the center of our Christian hope. The amazingly great power that God worked in bringing about new life from a dead body in a tomb is the same power that God is working right now in us. Um, This is um, found in the Ephesians lesson that we were uh, coming upon this Sunday by God's providence. Um, And it's a fitting meditation for Easter Sunday. Because Paul's concern for the church, which we're about to hear, is that they would have the spirit of knowledge, that they would come to understand better and more deeply the truth of God's power in Christ's resurrection. And isn't this what Easter is about? Uh, Not just that we would celebrate the fact of the resurrection, the, the truth of an empty tomb, but that we would appreciate it as God's victory over sin and death, guilt and shame, sadness and sorrow. And that we would leave this place today understanding the resurrection in such a way that we feel its power and are more confident of our future. And that our faith in Christ, our love for God might be crowned with a glorious hope. Um, this is uh, what Peter says in his epistle is uh, recognizably different about Christians, right? He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The hope that we have in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So this is God's holy word. I'll begin reading at first uh, Ephesians 1 verse 15 through the end of chapter 1 and verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ, When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Thus far, God's holy word. Join me in the prayer for illumination found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Even in that prayer, we see that we ask for God's Spirit that we might understand the fullness of His truth. And the outline of our sermon, we begin here uh, with this first cause. 
uh, the cause of the resurrection is the power, the infinite power of God seen in that miracle. Paul began his letter to the church in Ephesus by praising God, by blessing God for his glorious work of redemption, which is um, the reason that we then turn around and bless him. God has blessed us so that we may bless him. And in the snapshot, we saw that, that this picture of redemption began in eternity past with the Father's electing grace in Christ. And it was fulfilled with the blood of the cross where we were redeemed. And it is uh, forward-looking to eternity with this glorious, abundant inheritance in the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. And now he turns from that, that blessing, that praise of God. Which is a good way for us to begin our prayers, right? Even at home this day. Lord, we bless you for your power, for your might, for your, your beauty. But then he turns to thanksgiving. Which is another great part significant part of Christian prayer. And he gives thanks for the Ephesian church. He thanks God for their faith and their love. And these are both gifts of the Spirit. This is why he thanks God for them, right? He's thanking God for what he has done in the saints, the believing saints who live in Ephesus. And he asks God to give them his Spirit, to continue to give him his Spirit, so that they may continue to grow in knowledge and understanding. He prays. So now he's, he's saying he has given thanks. And now he tells them. It's kind of an awkward construction. He tells them the content of his prayers to God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of glory. May give you the spirit. Again the Trinitarian formulation. What spirit? The spirit of wisdom. And of revelation. In the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Before we turn to the content of that knowledge that the Spirit reveals to us, the thing we know, uh, note what it is, how central it is, that this thing must be revealed and made known to us. Notice that Paul's chief concern for the church, his chief prayer for the Ephesian church, is that they would come to a greater knowledge and understanding of the gospel. That they may know their hope. You see, brothers and sisters, your Christian faith, your Christian hope, your comfort, your joy, your peace, they're rooted and grounded in how well you understand and know Jesus Christ and your Heavenly Father. How well you know the gospel. Doctrine is not a dead life, lifeless thing. Doctrine gives life. Paul piles up words here. Wisdom. Revelation. Knowledge. Enlightenment. Turns out Rousseau didn't invent enlightenment. Paul did. Enlightenment. That your eyes of your heart may have light shine upon them. And this is interesting. Often Paul draws upon other ancient sources. But this is a, a uniquely Pauline construction. The heart is the, is the center of one's being, the center of their, not only thoughts, so we could interchange for Paul heart and brain, right? But also the, the center of emotion and will. May your hearts, the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. And knowing, which he repeats twice, and we could understand and translate this knowing with the word understanding, that you might not only know but grasp, but really get God's grace. 
Now, Paul may be drawing on Isaiah chapter 11 here. Isaiah 11 is a famous prophecy. You've probably heard it around Christmas time. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament is, is similar to faith, trust in the Lord. Isaiah is prophesying that this spirit of understanding and wisdom would rest on the Messiah, on Jesus Christ, the one to come, the shoot of Jesse. But you see, when we come to the end of Paul's text here, the precise exact point of Paul's text is that because this spirit has rested upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the head of his church, which he fills... That same Spirit now rests on us. God gives us His Spirit through Christ. And what do we know? What is, what is the content? And really better than what, the question is, who? It is personal, intimate knowledge that the Gospel reveals to us. Listen to what Paul says. The knowledge of Him. That you may know What is the hope to which He has called you? He's referring back to that election. The same word from early in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The hope of this election. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Power that God is working in us according to the working of His great might. I've uh, listened to Ephesians a few times. On the way in, if you go, if you go 2X, you've got to go 2X. On the way in, I listen to Ephesians and Colossians, these sister letters. So just on a, on a simple commute to church, you can hear Paul's letters. And the thing that you hear at each one of the breaking points of Paul's letters, the end of chapter 3, chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 4, and at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul, your brother, your friend, in chains, in chains, in chains. He doesn't want them to lose hope. He's in prison. And he wants them to know that their gospel calling is full of hope no matter what their circumstances are. He wants us to know God and most importantly, God's great power in the resurrection. It's not power in the abstract. You know, you might think of, uh, uh, look up uh, power in the in the dictionary, what, what picture would illustrate power, right? A nuclear bomb going off, a big mushroom cloud. Can we imagine more power, material, physical power being unleashed and boom, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not abstract power that blasts things to pieces. It's like the power of a laser. It's God's power for a specific purpose. It's his energy. It's like a laser that cuts away a tumor cauterizes the blood vessels and heals. It's power directed toward us who believe. Paul talked, Paul, there I go. Luke, our associate pastor, not the Apostle Paul, talked about faith this morning in our catechism class. Faith and belief are central to the New Testament. It's the same Greek word to the believers. Remember, he addressed this letter to believing saints in Ephesus. And that faith here comes from God's power. Resurrection power. 
Paul wants us to know that our faith and our love, which he's giving thanks for, are from God. It's God in us, working in us. Think ahead, and we'll come to it again later in our sermon, but chapter 2, the famous lines from Ephesians, for you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God was rich in his mercy and raised you up with Christ. We came to saving faith because God was working in us the power of the resurrection. How are we to understand this unimaginable, immeasurable power? If you can't measure it, if you can't wrap your head around it, how do we understand it? And and Paul says it's immeasurable, but it's the same power worked in the Messiah. And he uses that same expression, the Christ, the Messiah, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's, he's viewing the resurrection and the ascension as a complex of divine saving activity. And Paul uses the same word, immeasurable, in chapter 3, when he talks about the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This word has the idea of surpassing, overflowing, going beyond the bounds of our understanding. It is surpassingly great power. It is power beyond what we can humanly imagine. If you didn't see it, if you weren't a witness, you couldn't imagine this power. To have Christian hope in this world, to be comforted in the face of all sadness and misery, the guilt and shame that confronts each and every one of us, you have to understand God's promises, His promised blessing, the inheritance He has bestowed upon us, and the power which He possesses to deliver on those promises. Not only what He has said He can do, but that He will and has and is doing so. This is abstract to us. Unless we look at the empty tomb. Maybe you've sat at the bedside while a grandparent died. In recent months. Maybe you've watched a parent die. Draw their last breath. Death is a great enemy. And when you see the last breaths of life. Leave a person's body. The change is almost instant and profound. Death is is manifest there in cold flesh. No pulse, no breath, no movement. I don't want to be macabre, but, but that concrete death for that dead person with nothing, no energy, no motive force to come back to life is this surpassing power. Materialism, the modern philosophy that rules our age, right? That the only thing that really exists is stuff, matter. It just says when you die, you're done. That's it. You turn to dust. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't really listen to much Christian podcasts. I don't know why. I don't like most of them. But none of these people believe anything. And when push comes to shove, they're talking about the meaning of life. They're talking about joy. They're talking about love. They're talking about humanity. And they all believe Almost to the very one that when they die, they turn to dust and that's it. That's what our world believes and teaches. That's why our world is living the way it is living. Because they have nothing else to live for. But we do. John Updike wrote a poem of the resurrection 
that gets to the materialist dilemma. And I usually read it at Easter time. I don't usually read it in my sermon. But it is, I think it captures this power and this might. Listen to his words. It's worth reading in whole. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes. The same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, for our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. John Updike wasn't really known as a, a reformed or Calvinist minister, but I can't help that last nine when he talks about crushed by the remonstrance, that he, he does have a certain affection for the five points of Calvinism, but that's another subject. God has the power to give life in the face of death. And that, at essence, is the promise of the gospel. Romans 4 says Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in the God who gives life to dead things? And that's why Paul says in the same uh, passage that Christ Jesus was raised for our justification. He can't forgive your sins if he can't bring you back from the dead. It's the same thing. Abraham, fully convinced that God was able, that he had the power to do what he had promised. And that's why faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's why he was justified. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Do you believe in him? That's the question of Easter. The one who raised Jesus from the dead and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was raised for our justification. We know God's power, the power to speak into existence things that do not exist, 
from its effect. We don't know it immediately. We can't draw it or describe it. We see it in creation. And we take it for granted every day. But the the Bible, the psalmist, Psalm 8 today, for instance. Beautiful things. All creation cries out, sings the hymn of glory to the God who made it. But we see it even more powerfully in our redemption, our recreation, which is portrayed for us in the resurrection of Christ. And this really brings us to our second point in the outline. So the cause is God's almighty power, and the effect is Jesus the Christ is enthroned as king. God's power, like, I'm going to go back to the metaphor I told you not to use, like that nuclear bomb that you can't contain, right? It had an effect. It had a laser-like effect on the dead body of Christ in the tomb. He's God. Sometimes we think of the resurrection, well, well, Jesus wasn't just a man, right? He was a God-man. Of course he wasn't going to stay in the grave. It's something obvious to us. We can't feel its power like the first disciples felt its power. Because they mourned, they grieved for three days. The men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, why are you so sad? Because we thought he was the Holy One of Israel. And he says, you foolish, dumb, he kind of calls them dumb, slow to believe. The whole point was that the Messiah would suffer and then come in glory. And Paul, again, piles up language amplifying God's working, his effectiveness, his power. Not only is it surpassingly great, it is effective in its strength and might. It is effective in raising the Messiah from the dead. One of the words here for strength is the same word, the same root that we would use for a verb to grasp, to hold on to. And when Jesus raises the girl from the dead in the Gospels, it says he he grasps her hand. And raises her up. It's like the father grasping the son in the tomb and raising him up. We need to understand here, and I think what Paul is is focusing our attention by talking about the Christ, is that Jesus is a man. We need to think about Easter Sunday and think about Jesus in his humanity. As much as we think of his humanity when he is born a baby, just like every other baby. Crying Wet, dirty, needing to be cleaned and fed and changed. That's Jesus in the tomb. Paul focuses our attention on the humanity here in at least three ways. First, he says that the power was worked in the Christ, the Messiah. Now, now that's referring to the one in the Old Testament who is David's son, the king. Israel was looking forward to a human king to throw off its bondage and slavery to worldly powers. And that's who Jesus was. When the Messiah is crowned and enthroned through the resurrection, that's a man coming back to life. Second, we see the humanity in view when Paul says that he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's an allusion to Psalm 110. Again, a human king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is probably, I think... Didn't put it in my notes. This is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quotes this psalm. Remember, to befuddle the Pharisees, when he says, so who is it that's Jesus' Lord? Or rather, that's David's Lord. When David, our Lord, says to his Lord, who's he talking about? Jesus knows it's about him. Third and finally, We see the humanity of Jesus when the words of Psalm 8 are quoted and applied to him. And he put all things under his feet. Now Psalm 8, we read it this morning. 
is speaking of Adam in the garden. It's speaking of the ideal glory of man at his creation. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. For you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. He's talking about the honor that man had at his creation. But that honor and glory included a royal authority to rule and reign over all creation. Man was to obediently love God and love his neighbor. To be a true prophet, priest, and king. And so Psalm 8 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And the author to the Hebrews, quite presciently, quotes this psalm and says, But we don't see all things under our feet right now. It hasn't gone according to plan. This text is quoted by Paul and by Hebrews to point out that Jesus is the second Adam. The true Adam. The faithful Adam. Who wasn't away without leave when he's called to duty and service? Who doesn't fail to obey his heavenly father, but listens to every word that comes from his mouth? And here we see that this Jesus is put over all creation, the entire cosmos, to all order it and to keep it all aligned, all praising and honoring God as it was intended to be. I don't know about you, but I can't even keep my office clean, much less the cosmos. And Jesus is enthroned over all things in heaven and earth. The power of God is seen not just in raising a dead man from the grave, but in working this victory over sin and death and to put him on a throne at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has gone from the ultimate place of cursing, the grave, the tomb, the place where bodies rot. Cursed is he who hangs upon a tree to the ultimate place of triumph and victory. Seated at the right hand of heaven on high. And in his resurrection and ascension, he has ushered in the glorious kingdom of God. The curtain has been raised. The enthronement has occurred. And this is that same truth that that moves Paul so much when he's talking about the resurrection in his letter to the Corinthians. Where he says, I tell you this, my brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You hear that? Anyone who says there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of God here on earth among flesh and blood, they're wrong. Because this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. Paul writes, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Paul, in this letter, really likes piling up synonyms. It's one of his motifs here. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And he shall put all things under his feet and give him as head over all things in the church, to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now these terms don't mean a lot to us today. Rule, 
authority, power, and dominion. But these are terms that would have been familiar to someone living in Ephesus. They are the terms for the demons, the spirits, the gods, the powers that dwelt behind every season, every storm, every rock, every river. And the Ephesians lived in terror, fear of a world out of their control. We talked about it a few weeks earlier, a world full of chaos where gods threatened them. There are writings about the Ephesians that they wouldn't begin a day without, without blessing everything they picked up, without writing some magic incantation, hoping to call on the names of the proper gods to control, to, to exercise some sort of control on this chaotic world. And the name that is named were the spells which were offered in the promise of calling upon and controlling a spirit-infested world. Remember in Acts chapter 18... The Apostle Paul is doing wonderful works by the name of Jesus and some false exorcists come and they say, I I command you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the evil spirit says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I have no clue who you are. And so we read that Paul was working these miracles and fear fell upon them all. The city of Ephesus and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. People bought and kept books to exercise magic on this world and burned them in the sight of all. And so they counted the value of them and it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, God's word, the spirit of knowledge and wisdom was given to the people and that grew. And they had hope. They didn't have to rely on their magic. And this brings us to our third and final point. The benefit The cause is God's strength and power. The effect is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as the King. And the benefit, brothers and sisters, is our faith, our hope, and our love. These three theological virtues that we find throughout the New Testament. The victory of Christ is ours. For Christ dwells in His church. He fills us up. God's surpassing strength and might in raising Christ from the dead, seating Him at the heavenly throne is power that is being exercised in and through us. The Ephesians knew what it was for a foreign power to come in and be conquered, for there to be a new king. And it's kind of a scary moment. We have analogy here in Washington, D.C., right? A new administration comes to town. I think there might be some other people, but I once worked for presidential administration, and when the new administration came to town, I lost my job. That's the reality. There are winners and there are losers in earthly power. Jesus' ascension is good news for us who believe. Because he's given as our head of our body. We share in his victory. We share in his power. He doesn't rule over us. Psalm 2 talks about the Lord's anointed dashing in pieces like a potter's vessel. The kings that rage against him. But if we trust and believe in him, he makes us a part of himself. He rules in and through us. Jesus tramples Satan under his feet. He crushes his head. And he does so by trampling Satan under our feet. We crush Satan through the power of faith. We are his body. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards believers. And we have faith because God has worked that power in us. And this is, as I said, what Paul will talk about in the next section. You were dead in trespasses and sin. 
But God, in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We give thanks for our faith, like Paul does, when we understand that we believe by the working of God's grace. Thank you, God, for preaching to me the gospel through my pastor, through my parents, through my school. We've been buried with Him and raised with Him. Do you thank God for your faith? You should, dear Christian. Prayers, Paul's prayer for you, ultimately, is that you would grow in your hope. And I think this is tied to the fact that he's writing from prison. That hope, remember, is not something that we see and possess now. It's future. That's what makes it hope. If it's tangible, it's not hope. And so we need to grow in our hope, which means we need to grow in our ability to suffer. And remain hopeful. We need to grow in our ability to to navigate this world. And be confident of God's goodness. When the world testifies. Of its brokenness. I have no doubt that today you can see many obstacles to heavenly glory in your life. I have no doubt that there are many things that do not give you joy. You see them. They're real. Brothers and sisters in church we bear those burdens together. We share them with one another. We encourage one another through them. But we believe in the God who creates things that exist from nothing. Creates life from death. And this Easter, my prayer for you is Paul's prayer. That the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That you may know him and his power in you. That you may know him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That you may know him as your savior. The one who has raised you from the dead, from sin and guilt and shame, who fills you now. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you as little children. We see what's in front of our faces every day. We have reason to be sad. We hunger, we thirst, we want And we, like your children in the wilderness, murmur and complain. We pray that you would, this Easter Sunday, renew in us a knowledge of your power and strength and might in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And remind us of the fruit of that resurrection, the benefit to us here and now, and the reality of hope and a precious, glorious inheritance. Fill our hearts with joy that we might go forth from this place a changed people, So that the world would ask us, why are you so hopeful? And we could share with them the reason, the surpassing power of God who raised Christ Jesus from the grave. Amen.